Chapter Forty Seven B of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Forty Seven B. Lityerses. Three. Human Sacrifices for the Crops The Indians of Guayaquil in Ecuador used to sacrifice human blood and the hearts of men when they sowed their fields. The people of Cañar, now Cuenca in Ecuador, used to sacrifice a hundred children annually at harvest. The kings of Quito, the Incas of Peru, and for a long time the Spaniards, were unable to suppress the bloody rite. At a Mexican harvest festival, when the first fruits of the season were offered to the sun, a criminal was placed between two immense stones, balanced opposite each other, and was crushed by them as they fell together. His remains were buried, and a feast and dance followed. This sacrifice was known as the Meeting of the Stones. We have seen that the ancient Mexicans also sacrificed human beings at all the various stages in the growth of the maize, the age of the victims corresponding to the age of the corn. For they sacrificed newborn babes at sowing, older children when the grain had sprouted, and so on till it was fully ripe when they sacrificed old men. No doubt the correspondence between the ages of the victims and the state of the corn was supposed to enhance the efficacy of the sacrifice. The Pawnees annually sacrificed a human victim in spring when they sowed their fields. The sacrifice was believed to have been enjoined on them by the morning star, or by a certain bird which the morning star had sent to them as its messenger. The bird was stuffed and preserved as a powerful talisman. They thought that an omission of this sacrifice would be followed by the total failure of the crops of maize, beans, and pumpkins. The victim was a captive of either sex. He was clad in the gayest and most costly attire, was fattened on the choicest food, and carefully kept in ignorance of his doom. When he was fat enough, they bound him to a cross in the presence of the multitude, danced a solemn dance, then cleft his head with a tomahawk, and shot him with arrows. According to one trader, the squaws then cut pieces of flesh from the victim's body, with which they greased their hose. But this was denied by another trader, who had been present at the ceremony. Immediately after the sacrifice, the people proceeded to plant their fields. A particular account has been preserved of the sacrifice of a Sioux girl by the Pawnees in April 1837 or 1838. The girl was fourteen or fifteen years old, and had been kept for six months, and well treated. Two days before the sacrifice she was led from wigwam to wigwam, accompanied by the whole council of chiefs and warriors. At each lodge she received a small billet of wood and a little paint, which she handed to the warrior next to her. In this way she called at every wigwam, receiving at each the same present of wood and paint. On the 22nd of April she was taken out to be sacrificed, attended by the warriors, each of whom carried two pieces of wood, which he had received from her hands. Her body having been painted half red and half black, she was attached to a sort of gibbet, 
and roasted for some time over a slow fire, then shot to death with arrows. The chief sacrificer next tore out her heart and devoured it. While her flesh was still warm, it was cut in small pieces from the bones, put in little baskets, and taken to a neighbouring cornfield. There the head chief took a piece of the flesh from a basket, and squeezed a drop of blood upon the newly deposited grains of corn. His example was followed by the rest, till all the seed had been sprinkled with the blood. It was then covered up with earth. According to one account, the body of the victim was reduced to a kind of paste, which was rubbed or sprinkled not only on the maize, but also on the potatoes, the beans, and other seeds, to fertilize them. By this sacrifice they hoped to obtain plentiful crops. A West African queen used to sacrifice a man and woman in the month of March. They were killed with spades and hoes, and their bodies buried in the middle of a field which had just been tilled. At Lagos in Guinea it was the custom annually to impale a young girl alive soon after the spring equinox in order to secure good crops. Along with her were sacrificed sheep and goats, which, with yams, heads of maize, and plantains, were hung on stakes on each side of her. The victims were bred up for the purpose in the king's seraglio, and their minds had been so powerfully wrought upon by the fetish men that they went cheerfully to their fate. A similar sacrifice used to be annually offered at Benin in Guinea. The Marimos, a Betuana tribe, sacrifice a human being for the crops. The victim chosen is generally a short, stout man. He is seized by violence, or intoxicated and taken to the fields, where he is killed amongst the wheat to serve as seed, so they phrase it. After his blood has coagulated in the sun, it is burnt along with the frontal bone, the flesh attached to it, and the brain. The ashes are then scattered over the ground to fertilize it. The rest of the body is eaten. The Bagobos of Mindanao, one of the Philippine islands, offer a human sacrifice before they sow their rice. The victim is a slave, who is hewn to pieces in the forest. The natives of Bontoc, in the interior of Luzon, one of the Philippine islands, are passionate headhunters. Their principal seasons for head-hunting are the times of planting and reaping the rice. In order that the crop may turn out well, every farm must get at least one human head at planting, and one at sowing. The head-hunters go out in twos or threes, lie in wait for the victim, whether man or woman, cut off his or her head, hands and feet, and bring them back in haste to the village, where they are received with great rejoicings. The skulls are at first exposed on the branches of two or three dead trees, which stand in an open space of every village, surrounded by large stones which serve as seats. The people then dance round them and feast and get drunk. When the flesh has decayed from the head, the man who cut it off takes it home and preserves it as a relic, while his companions do the same with the hands and the feet. Similar customs are observed by the Apoyaus, another tribe in the interior of Luzon. Among the Lotanaga, one of the many savage tribes who inhabit the deep, rugged, labyrinthine glens which wind into the mountains from the rich valley of Brahmaputra, it used to be a common custom to cut off the heads, hands and feet of people they met with, 
and then stick up the severed extremities in their fields to ensure a good crop of grain. They bore no ill will whatever to the persons upon whom they operated in this unceremonious fashion. Once they flayed a boy alive, carved him in pieces, and distributed the flesh among all the villagers, who put it into their corn bins to avert bad luck and ensure plentiful crops of grain. The Gonds of India, a Dravidian race, kidnapped Brahmin boys and kept them as victims to be sacrificed on various occasions. At sowing and reaping, after a triumphal procession, one of the lads was slain by being punctured with a poison arrow. His blood was then sprinkled over the ploughed field or the ripe crop, and his flesh was devoured. The Oraons, or Uraons, of Chotanagpur worship a goddess called Anakuari, who can give good crops and make a man rich, but to induce her to do so it is necessary to offer human sacrifices. In spite of the vigilance of the British government, these sacrifices are said to be still secretly perpetrated. The victims are poor waifs and strays, whose disappearance attracts no notice. April and May are the months when the catchpoles are out on the prowl. At that time strangers will not go about the country alone, and parents will not let their children enter the jungle or herd the cattle. When a catchpole has found a victim, he cuts his throat, and carries away the upper part of the ring finger and the nose. The goddess takes up her abode in the house of any man who has offered her a sacrifice, and from that time his fields yield a double harvest. The form she assumes in the house is that of a small child. When the householder brings in his unhusked rice, he takes the goddess and rolls her over the heap to double its size but she soon grows restless, and can only be pacified with the blood of fresh human victims. But the best-known case of human sacrifices, systematically offered to ensure good crops, is supplied by the Khans or Khans, another Dravidian race, in Bengal. Our knowledge of them is derived from the accounts written by British officers, who, about the middle of the nineteenth century, were engaged in putting them down. The sacrifices were offered to the earth goddess Tari Pennu or Bera Pennu, and were believed to ensure good crops and immunity from all disease and accidents. In particular, they were considered necessary in the cultivation of turmeric, the cons arguing that the turmeric could not have a deep red colour without the shedding of blood. The victim, or Meria, as he was called, was acceptable to the goddess only if he had been purchased, or had been born of a victim, that is, the son of a victim father, or had been devoted as a child by his father or guardian. Cons, in distress, often sold their children for victims, considering the beatification of their souls certain, and their death, for the benefit of mankind, the most honourable possible. A man of the Panua tribe was once seen to load a cond with curses, and finally to spit in his face, because the cond had sold for a victim his own child, whom the Panua had wished to marry. A party of cons, who saw this, immediately pressed forward to comfort the seller of his child, saying, Your child has died that all the world may live, and the earth goddess herself will wipe that spittle from your face. 
The victims were often kept for years before they were sacrificed. Being regarded as consecrated beings, they were treated with extreme affection, mingled with deference, and were welcomed wherever they went. A Meria youth, on attaining maturity, was generally given a wife, who was herself usually a Meria, or victim. And with her he received a portion of land and farm stock. Their offspring were also victims. Human sacrifices were offered to the earth goddess by tribes, branches of tribes, or villages, both at periodical festivals and on extraordinary occasions. The periodical sacrifices were generally so arranged by tribes and divisions of tribes that each head of a family was enabled, at least once a year, to procure a shred of flesh for his fields, generally about the time when his chief crop was laid down. The mode of performing these tribal sacrifices was as follows. Ten or twelve days before the sacrifice, the victim was devoted by cutting off his hair, which, until then, had been kept unshorn. Crowds of men and women assembled to witness the sacrifice. None might be excluded, since the sacrifice was declared to be for all mankind. It was preceded by several days of wild revelry and gross debauchery. On the day before the sacrifice, the victim, dressed in a new garment, was led forth from the village in solemn procession, with music and dancing, to the Meria Grove, a clump of high forest trees, standing a little way from the village, and untouched by the axe. There they tied him to a post, which was sometimes placed between two plants of the Sankisa shrub. He was then anointed with oil, ghee, and turmeric, and adorned with flowers, and a species of reverence which it is not easy to distinguish from adoration, was paid to him throughout the day. A great struggle now arose to obtain the smallest relic from his person. A particle of the turmeric paste with which he was smeared, or a drop of his spittle, was esteemed of sovereign virtue, especially by the women. The crowd danced round the post to music, and, addressing the earth, said, O God, we offer this sacrifice to you. Give us good crops, seasons, and health. Then, speaking to the victim, they said, We bought you with a price, and did not seize you. Now we sacrifice you according to custom, and no sin rests with us. On the last morning, the orgies, which had been scarcely interrupted during the night, were resumed, and continued till noon, when they ceased, and the assembly proceeded to consummate the sacrifice. The victim was again anointed with oil, and each person touched the anointed part, and wiped the oil on his own head. In some places they took the victim in procession round the village, from door to door, where some plucked hair from his head, and others begged for a drop of his spittle, with which they anointed their heads. As the victim might not be bound, nor make any show of resistance, the bones of his arms, and if necessary his legs, were broken. But often this precaution was rendered unnecessary by stupefying him with opium. The mode of putting him to death varied in different places. One of the commonest modes seems to have been strangulation, or squeezing to death. The branch of a green tree was cleft several feet down the middle. The victim's neck, in other places his chest, was inserted in the cleft, which the priest, aided by his assistants, strove with all his force to close. 
Then he wounded the victim slightly with his axe, whereupon the crowd rushed at the wretch and hewed the flesh from the bones, leaving the head and bowels untouched. Sometimes he was cut up alive. In Chinakimedi he was dragged along the fields, surrounded by the crowd, who, avoiding his head and intestines, hacked the flesh from his body with their knives till he died. Another very common mode of sacrifice, in the same district, was to fasten the victim to the proboscis of a wooden elephant, which revolved on a stout post, and, as it whirled round, the crowd cut the flesh from the victim while life remained. In some villages, Major Campbell found as many as fourteen of these wooden elephants, which had been used at sacrifices. In one district, the victim was put to death slowly by fire. A low stage was formed, sloping on either side like a roof. Upon it they laid the victim, his limbs wound round with cords to confine his struggles. Fires were then lighted, and hot brands applied, to make him roll up and down the slopes of the stage as long as possible, for the more tears he shed, the more abundant would be the supply of rain. Next day the body was cut to pieces. The flesh cut from the victim was instantly taken home by the persons who had been deputed by each village to bring it. To secure its rapid arrival, it was sometimes forwarded by relays of men, and conveyed with postal fleetness fifty or sixty miles. In each village all who stayed at home fasted rigidly until the flesh arrived. The bearer deposited it in the place of public assembly, where it was received by the priest and the heads of families. The priest divided it into two portions, one of which he offered to the earth goddess by burying it in a hole in the ground, with his back turned and without looking. Then each man added a little earth to bury it, and the priest poured water on the spot from a hill gourd. The other portion of flesh he divided into as many shares as there were heads of houses present. Each head of a house rolled his shred of flesh in leaves, and buried it in his favourite field, placing it in the earth behind his back without looking. In some places each man carried his portion of flesh to the stream which watered his fields, and there hung it on a pole. For three days thereafter no house was swept, and in one district strict silence was observed, no fire might be given out, no wood cut, and no strangers received. The remains of the human victim, namely the head, bowels, and bones, were watched by strong parties the night after the sacrifice, and next morning they were burnt, along with a whole sheep, on a funeral pile. The ashes were scattered over the fields, laid as paste over the houses and granaries, or mixed with the new corn to preserve it from insects. Sometimes, however, the head and bones were buried, not burnt. After the suppression of the human sacrifices, inferior victims were substituted in some places. For instance, in the capital of Chinakimedi, a goat took the place of a human victim. Others sacrifice a buffalo. They tie it to a wooden post in a sacred grove, dance wildly round it with brandished knives, then, falling on the live animal, hack it to shreds and tatters in a few minutes, fighting and struggling with each other for every particle of flesh. As soon as a man has secured a piece, he makes off with it at full speed to bury it in his fields, according to ancient custom, before the sun has set, and as some of them have far to go, 
they must run very fast. All the women throw clods of earth at the rapidly retreating figures of the men, some of them taking a very good aim. Soon the sacred grove, so lately a scene of tumult, is silent and deserted except for a few people who remain to guard all that is left of the buffalo, to wit, the head, the bones, and the stomach, which are burnt with ceremony at the foot of the stake. In these con sacrifices, the merias are represented by our authorities as victims offered to propitiate the earth goddess. But from the treatment of the victims, both before and after death, it appears that the custom cannot be explained as merely a propitiatory sacrifice. A part of the flesh, certainly, was offered to the earth goddess, but the rest was buried by each householder in his fields, and the ashes of the other parts of the body were scattered over the fields, laid as paste on the granaries, or mixed with the new corn. These latter customs imply that to the body of the Meria there was ascribed a direct or intrinsic power of making the crops to grow, quite independent of the indirect efficacy which it might have as an offering to secure the goodwill of the deity. In other words, the flesh and ashes of the victim were believed to be endowed with a magical or physical power of fertilising the land. The same intrinsic power was ascribed to the blood and tears of the Meria, his blood causing the redness of the turmeric, and his tears producing rain, for it can hardly be doubted that, originally at least, the tears were supposed to bring down the rain, not merely to prognosticate it. Similarly, the custom of pouring water on the buried flesh of the Meria was no doubt a rain charm. Again, magical power, as an attribute of the Meria, appears in the sovereign virtue believed to reside in anything that came from his person, as his hair or spittle. The ascription of such power to the Meria indicates that he was much more than a mere man sacrificed to propitiate a deity. Once more, the extreme reverence paid him points to the same conclusion. Major Campbell speaks of the Meria as being regarded as something more than mortal, and Major Macpherson says, a species of reverence, which it is not easy to distinguish from adoration, is paid to him. In short, the Meria seems to have been regarded as divine. As such, he may originally have represented the earth goddess, or, perhaps, a deity of vegetation, though in later times he came to be regarded rather as a victim offered to a deity, than as himself an incarnate god. This later view of the Meria as a victim, rather than a divinity, may perhaps have received undue emphasis from the European writers who have described the Khond religion. Habituated to the later idea of sacrifice as an offering made to a god for the purpose of conciliating his favour, European observers are apt to interpret all religious slaughter in this sense, and to suppose that wherever such slaughter takes place, there must necessarily be a deity to whom the carnage is believed by the slayers to be acceptable. Thus their preconceived ideas may unconsciously colour and warp their description of savage rites. The same custom of killing the representative of a god, of which strong traces appear in the Khon sacrifices, may perhaps be detected in some of the other human sacrifices described above. 
Thus the ashes of the slaughtered Marimo were scattered over the fields, the blood of the Brahman lad was put on the crop and field, the flesh of the slain Naga was stowed in the corn bin, and the blood of the Sioux girl was allowed to trickle on the seed. Again the identification of the victim with the corn, in other words the view that he is an embodiment or spirit of the corn, is brought out in the pains which seem to be taken to secure a physical correspondence between him and the natural object which he embodies or represents. Thus the Mexicans killed young victims for the young corn, and old ones for the ripe corn. The Marimos sacrifice as seed a short fat man, the shortness of his stature corresponding to that of the young corn, his fatness to the condition which it is desired that the crops may attain, and the Pawnees fattened their victims probably with the same view. Again the identification of the victim with the corn comes out in the African custom of killing him with spades and hoes, and the Mexican custom of grinding him, like corn, between two stones. One more point in these savage customs deserves to be noted. The Pawnee chief devoured the heart of the Sioux girl, and the Marimos and Gons ate the victim's flesh. If, as we suppose, the victim was regarded as divine, it follows that in eating his flesh his worshippers believed themselves to be partaking of the body of their god. End of chapter 47b